6, 5, 4. You have discovered season 3 of The 542 and the Blue Podcast. A podcast on law enforcement history, issues and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and beyond. Hosted by Scott Lunsford, retired police detective sergeant, author and researcher. Today's shade of blue story begins with a short poem. The Graveyard Rabbit In the white moonlight, where the willow waves, he halfway gallops among the graves, a tiny ghost in the gloom and gleam, content to dwell where the dead men dream. But wary still, for they plot him ill, for the graveyard rabbit hath a charm, may God defend us, to shield from harm. Over the shimmering slabs he goes, every grave and the dark he knows, but his nest is hidden from human eye where headstones broken on old graves lie. Wary still, for they plot him ill, for the graveyard rabbit, though skeptics scoff, charmeth the witch and the wizard off. The dark man creeps, when the night is dim, fearful, still, on the track of him, or fleetly follows the way he runs, for he heals the hurts of the conjured ones. Wary still, for they plot him ill, the souls bewitched that would find release, to the graveyard rabbit go for peace. He holds their secret, he brings a boon, where winds moan wild in the dark of the moon, and gold shall glitter and love smile sweet to whoever shall sever his furry feet. Wary still, for they plot him ill, for the graveyard rabbit hath a charm, may God defend us, to shield from harm. Scott, we are recording. Your microphone is now on. 3, 2, 1. Thank you, Victoria. Victoria has just read us the poem called The Graveyard Rabbit by Frank L. Stanton. Stanton was an American lyricist born in 1857 in Atlanta, Georgia. He was also the first professional columnist for the Atlanta Constitution and the first poet laureate for the state of Georgia. Now, a person who studies graveyards or has that as a hobby is sometimes called officially a tabophile. Now, this is someone who takes an interest in cemeteries, tombstones, or the memory of past lives. Shakespeare and Edgar Allan Poe were tabophiles themselves, as a matter of fact. Now, the word's taken from the Greek, which means to love graves. Now, a lot of times, tabophile is confused with the word necrophile, a totally different Necrophiles are sexually or physically attracted to dead things or people. Tabophiles are interested in cemeteries, although it is also known as the study sometimes of decomposing or decaying things. One might consider that a fitting hobby for a forensic scientist and or detectives. Many tabophiles, myself included, prefer the term graveyard rabbit. Hence why we had the poem at first. Now what is a graveyard rabbit? 
Individuals dedicated to the academic promotion of the historical importance of cemeteries, grave markers, and the family history to be learned from a study of customs, burial grounds, tombstones, and the social promotion of this study, the preservation of cemeteries, and of course the documentation of genealogical and historical information written on the stones and on markers and signages in cemeteries. There's a lot of information to be found on grave markers, names, birth dates, dates of death, and, and such. On a lot of weather-worn stone carvings, you can also find the designs are more than just decoration. They can have a, a meaning, vir a virtue the person that is buried there exemplified, a value they held dear, possibly how they earned their living, or even how they died, and in some cases, who killed them. An example of imagery that you might see, a weaving symbol carved on a cross-shaped gravestone. This may be interpreted as a Christogram, the Latin representative for Christ. Some other meanings founded on stones can sometimes be interpreted in different ways. Uh, for example, if you see an acorn or acorns decorating a stone, it could represent prosperity, power, triumph, anvil and hammer, more than likely in the case of blacksmith. A basket could indicate fertility and or a maternal bond. Of course, a dove or a bird, the flight of the soul. A candle can represent life. A column that's broken or can mean life is cut short or it was a very sudden death. You may see that many times on stones representing children. Evergreens, faithfulness, remembrance. Of course you might see a plow, a hoe, corn indicating a farmer. A fern or fruit can indicate solitude. A key could indicate knowledge or an entrance to heaven. A rose, love, beauty, strong bond, tree-shaped stones themselves. Now you see a number of those in the south. This is generally indicates a member of the modern woodsman of America or woodsman of the world fraternal organization member. You see quite, those are very quite intricate stones. Now let's look at today's Shade of Blue story. 4542 in the blue. We're going to talk about one tombstone in particular. How that stone affected others way after the person buried and passed away and even ended up changing North Carolina state law. Epitaphs on tombstones sometimes reveal not only a person's death but how and whether the end was peaceful. Some inscriptions often comment on the deceased virtues or lack of same. Quite often it's history itself written there. When foul play is involved or a crime or suspected crime, the victim stone may name the murderer and calls on the passerby to associate that name with the killing that occurred. Sort of like reaching up from the grave and getting the last word in. Now Mr. Henry Lawrence Nelson his tombstone is located in the Nelson Chapel Cemetery in Lenore, North Carolina. 
and it stood there for many years, pointing a figurative finger of accusation at two men for nearly half a century. Now, Mr. Lawrence Nelson grew up as a son of a Baptist minister, 25 years old at the time of his death, sometimes described as frail. He was dark-haired and prone to illnesses. And at the age of 25, Nelson left the strict household of his preacher father and went to Lenore, North Carolina to find work. Now, previously, while working at a sawmill as a boy, he had been in a very serious accident that left his left hand and foot badly damaged and mangled. His foot injury and handicap was very noticeable when he walked. He wore a fingerless glove to cover the hand that had been mutilated by the saw. Even with these injuries, he had overcome them and was able to work hard and was known as a very hard worker and went on to, when he went to Lenore, to work in the Gwyn Veneer Company in Lenore, an area very well known for its furniture production. Now, Nelson was living at Miss Harris's boarding house in Lenore and had several friends and acquaintances. On a Tuesday in October, October 16, 1906, he just up and vanished after leaving work early after he had said he was feeling sick. He had told someone that he was going to leave town and pick up some, quote, quality liquor. Now, he had been seen not long after that in an intoxicated state. It was thought that he probably had not left town and was able to find what he was looking for locally. And it was after these sightings that he vanished. The young man's father, Reverend John Nelson, along with the county commissioners, later placed an ad in the local newspaper of a $100 reward for information on his son's location, and then later on his son's death. Now, almost two months after his disappearance, a rabbit hunter and his dogs found Lawrence Nelson's skeleton in a field. The coroner inquest found he had been shot through the neck in a way the coroner determined would have killed him pretty much instantly. The verdict of the inquest was murdered and robbed by unknown parties. Now, the sheriff at the time was Sheriff John Smith, and of course he started an investigation. He ran down every available clue and tip he could find. He later remarked that something seemed wrong with all the tips that he was looking into, and it seemed to be leading him in a big circle. Now, one of Nelson's friends was known as Harp. He was a barber and well-known for his barbering skills and also had been working for a Mr. Pegleg Wilson in his wood shop on Depot Street. Pegleg Wilson, as it was printed in the newspapers, that is a really cool name, if you got to admit that. Pegleg let out information one day in conversation that Hamp hadn't shown up for work at the shop on the day Nelson went missing. Hemp's customers in the barber shop began to poke fun at him and teased him about possibly being the subject who had murdered Nelson. Now, it should be noted that later in the trial, several of these men testified that it was a joke, that they were just teasing him, 
and several men also hemp had been at work on the day in question, but their testimony was tossed out in favor of Pegleg's statement as he was the owner of the business. You can guess the teasing and joking got old and Hemp was getting pretty much peeved about it all. So he flew back with a, a retort or a remark one day after some teasing. If I did do it, I sure put him away good. And the court records say that he was remembered to have said. Now this retort ended up being used later against him at his trial. As it was, he was Nelson's roommate. Charles Hamilton Hamp Kendall. He was not only a woodworker but a barber. And his friend John Vickers. It was determined they were the last two people seen with Nelson the day that he went missing. Now the circumstantial evidence showed that Kendall and Vickers were actually both absent from work that day, although it was determined later, much later, when several people came up and said that Pegleg was wrong, that he had been at work that day. This caused the sheriff to be more suspicious of their involvement, of course. Now other stupid statements and comments that the two made on their part in public about the missing man and later about his death also ended up pointing a finger at the two. Gotta admit, Lord knows young men are known to say stupid things and make bad taste jokes. This activity actually followed the two into court. Now, is there a lesson to be learned here? Sometimes it's better to keep your mouth shut. Pegleg also stated in public and in court too that the missing man, Lawrence, had been showing off a few $20 gold pieces and some silver pieces one day in the shop. This was a few days before he disappeared. This created a motive for the sheriff. Motive being, of course, murder for the robbery. Now the rumor mill got cranked up and of course it was published in the media that Hemp Kendall had been seen with some gold and silver and then was in the process of changing same into cash. No one, though, could be found who could actually testify in court to this, and those facts were not used in evidence. But it was more than likely that the local jury pool had read this in the many newspapers that printed it. Now, charged with murder by the sheriff, the two men were sent to the grand jury, which found probable cause to send the case to Superior Court. Now, the real damaging testimony ended up coming from two 15-year-old teenage girls, Omni Greer and Maggie Lewis, who claimed that the two men had paid both of them to lure the dead man, Nelson, to a designated campfire in the woods. And after the two females left, they claimed to have heard shots fired, and so they ran away from the area. They also claimed that both of the men were jealous of Nelson and his attentions to them. Omni Green was considered a beautiful young blonde lady, 15 years of age, and Maggie Lewis, a brunette also, 15. Only Omni was used to testify in court. And the reason for this, according to gossip years later, was that Omni's story was the only one used because she could keep her story straight. 
Mag Lewis apparently couldn't keep her story straight, and it varied, and they were afraid, prosecution was afraid, of cross-examination of Lewis during the trial. Another point to look at is the fact that Omni did not produce her information on what had occurred until way later, after she had been arrested in Asheville, North Carolina. And then in the process of being incarcerated, she told detectives there that she had information on the Lenore, North Carolina homicide, which had, of course, spread through the North Carolina state papers. They, of course, contacted the sheriff who went and retrieved Omni. He was also able to have the charges that she'd been arrested on dropped and put aside. Charges of vagrancy and what would be considered prostitution in today's court. Now at the trial itself, 15 individuals testify and swore an oath as to the bad character of Omni. And they all claimed that they had known her from when she was a child and she had a well-known reputation for not telling the truth if it could be avoided. But her testimony carried a, ver a lot of weight in, in getting the two men convicted. Both men testified in their own defense, him saying he never owned a pistol, and the first time he ever saw Omni Greer was, was at the preliminary trial, and that he was on work in Wilson's Barbershop the Wednesday following Nelson's disappearance. John Vickers' testimony was the same as Kendall's as to the day in question, but was a bit hazy about the few days following, and he said that's because he had worked off and stayed drunk. Now, one thing that didn't help the two men was Kendall's descriptive use of profanity from the witness chair in describing his innocence and that he was being framed. That didn't go very far with the jurors. The trial of Kendall's and Victor by the state of North Carolina lasted for just one week. It was concluded on a Saturday morning, March 1, 1907. That following Sunday morning, the news got out that the jury had agreed. It said in the papers that the whole town turned out to hear the verdict of guilty, which according to the local newspapers was met with general approval. Then again on the following Monday, once more the courthouse and the spaces outside the courthouse were full to hear the sentence. The young men ended up getting 30 years of hard labor for Kendall and 28 years of hard labor for Victors, for Vickers in the state penitentiary. Vickers received two years less because of his exemplary conduct during the Spanish-American War, they took two years off of his sentence. Both men were sent to Raleigh and to prison and a prison labor camp. Hemp ended up with being there for 10 years and four months imprisonment, where he was allowed to follow his trade of being a barber and became quite accomplished at that because it's pretty much all he had to do while he was in prison. Nelson's father had his son's tombstone after the trial inscribed with the phrase, Robbed and murdered by Hemp T. 
Kendall and John Vickers. Years later, those words inscribed in stone would cause just about as much gossip and speculation as the crime itself. Now, as the months rolled on, there was a growing suspicion among those that were once positive the two men had committed the crime, and they were so keen on the swift punishment of Kendall and Vickers that they were worried an injustice might have actually occurred. Stories of a number of $20 gold pieces having been passed and shown up in the town in the hands of a Mr. Sam Green came to light, this time with legitimate witnesses. Now, how Sam Green was a night watchman and oddly was the cousin of the main witness against the two men. Now, how did a night watchman on a small salary seem to have so much money and why did it all happen to be in gold and silver? Eh, good question, and a lot of people wondered the same thing. Now, Miss Omni, her guilty conscience finally got the best of her, at least temporarily. She confessed to her mother that she had lied on the witness stand and gave false testimony. This information was given to the sheriff, who first got the same confession from the young lady. She told the sheriff she was afraid of her cousin, uh, Sam Green, who had promised to kill her if she told the truth. Further investigation was conducted into the case of Nelson's death, which led to the arrest of Sam Green, the night watchman, and his cousin, Omni, who also ended up being tried for Nelson's murder. Now keep in mind, they've already convicted two people, sent them to prison, and now the sheriff has charged two other people in a totally unconnected, unrelated explanation of the crime. Now this is where it gets interesting, or at least more interesting. The attorneys who had prosecuted the case against Kendall and Vickers, who showed up to defend Green and his cousin Omni, who had herself once more changed her story, saying that she had lied about lying when she confessed. Okay. Now the attorneys having to keep the reputation in sight, they had several things at stake. Several of the defense attorneys, or former prosecution, now defense attorneys, had a lot at stake, political careers and reputations in the courtroom. When the Green and Greer case came up for trial in 1908 in February in Superior Court, they were very successful and an acquittal for Green and Omni was found. For the second time, this also was predicted. Not because of the evidence. Everyone figured it would happen due to the skills of the defense slash former prosecutors. They were able to get the two cousins acquitted of the charges. Once they did that, double jeopardy was now in place. They could not be charged with these crimes again. And, of course, our two men ended up staying in prison in Raleigh. Now, hearing the findings in Raleigh, another investigation was ordered by Governor Thomas Bickett because of the confusing information involved in the trial. 
his investigation concluded that Sam Green had murdered Lawrence Nelson and his cousin Omni had assisted Green in framing Kendall and Vickers. Kendall and Vickers were released and received a full pardon from the governor. Unfortunately, Vickers died a very short time after his release from prison. Now, time does not stop. Now out of prison, Hemp ended up moving to Detroit, Michigan, where he actually ended up becoming a Detroit police officer. This is according to the Raleigh News and Observer paper. He also continued his uh, side career as a barber as well. Although Hemp Kendall was an innocent man and his reputation had been repaired, the years he spent in prison for a crime he did not commit could never be restored. Now, Kendall, while he was uh, locked up, had heard about the accusing tombstone while in prison. After his release, his friends took him to see the grave and the inscription, and he said later that it just broke his heart. He had considered Nelson one of his friends. Kendall approached the Caldwell County representatives asking them to have the tombstone taken down or changed or something, and another put in its place. Because he was innocent of the crime and the inscription was slanderous to his reputation, but county officials took no action and just ignored his request. Kendall then wrote a letter to uh, the newly elected governor, a Greg Cherry, protesting against the epitaph on the tombstone. Now, the governor did reply, and he apologized and said he was powerless to do anything and that the relatives of the deceased would have to be the parties who could take action. Kendall spent many years trying to get his name removed from Nelson's tombstone. Now, Green, in the meantime, seems to have gotten religion. Real or not, his come-to-Jesus moment, he did make a decision, and it was a final one. Five years after Kendall and Vickers were granted pardons, in 1922, Sam Green confessed to the murder of Lawrence Nelson. Now, keeping in mind, he could not be tried on this because he was acquitted of it. After confessing, he went home, went out to his barn with a shotgun, opened up an empty stall, and after removing his shoes and socks, put the barrel in his mouth and pulled the trigger of the shotgun with his toes and committed suicide. Okay, that still leaves our cousin, Omni. What happened to her? Well, in 1908, she ended up being charged with operating a disorderly house in Henderson County. So we do have indications she moved out of the area and moved further up into the mountains. She was found to be insane and committed to a state hospital. Now, according to the Lenore News published article in 1921, she shows up again in court on a new charge. Well, actually, kind of the same charge. The charge of operating a house of ill fame. Isn't that a neat way to say it? A nice descriptive term. But she was acquitted of these charges, or at least found not guilty by reasons of insanity. And perhaps she was committed again. The article didn't say. And she pretty much drops from history at that point. I'm unable to find even a death certificate in North Carolina or a mention in the census records after 1925 for our young lady. 
Now the falsely accusing tombstone continued to slander Kendall for some time and did so almost in 1950 when in 1949 North Carolina Senator Max Wilson introduced legislation on liable tombstones and this ended up being published all the way in the New York Daily News in 1949. Now in 1947 Kendall received $4,912.56 in compensation from North Carolina legislature as a bill introduced in the General Assembly once more by Senator Max Wilson. Apparently 10 years of his life was not quite worth $5,000. But with the help but with the help of Senator Wilson, a bill was passed by the North Carolina General Assembly that made it illegal to erect or maintain a gravestone bearing an inscription charging anyone with the commission of a crime. Whether or not they did it, this forced the cemetery where the stone was at to remove this tombstone to avoid criminal charges. The accusing marker was later replaced and you can find a copy of the replaced, an image of the replaced stone on findagrave.com if you would like to look at that. Now the bill changing the law was passed as a personal favor for him, Kendall, who was 74 years old at the time. And as I said, Hemp ended up working as a police officer and continued to be a barber for many years. He passed away in 1969 at the age of 91. And now, hopefully, rests in peace knowing his reputation has been restored. And he rests beneath a plain, ordinary tombstone. Well, thank you for listening. I hope you found the story of the slanderous tombstone somewhat interesting. And when planning your final display yourself, you might keep that in mind on what you request to go onto your stone. Now, if you would like more information on my podcast, 542 in the Blue, you can go to scottlunsfordauthor.com where you can also get copies and look at information on my books my mystery books involving uh, the Asheville and Western North Carolina area for adults. They're called Cop and Coin. Where the, you can also find copies there of my young person's books, The Girls from Gift, Girls Investigating Fantastic Things, as well as uh, some other information at that website, and the ability to contact me and drop me a line by the contact page if you wish. And I would love to hear from you. I appreciate constructive criticism on the podcast and on my writing. I take it for what it's worth and then I take it in the spirit that is given. So until we meet again for another 542 in the Blue story, remember to be safe, be secure, and keep your hands clean. Do something nice for somebody. Okay, Victoria, you've got the helm again. You want to take us away and close us out. You have been listening to the 542 and the Blue Podcast. Discussions of law enforcement history, issues and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains. Hosted by writer and researcher Scott Lunsford. For more information, 
go to scotlandsfordauthor.com for links to more podcasts and information on Scott's books and how to order them. Scott can also be reached by the contact page. This is Victoria, producer for 542 and the Blue. Background theme, used with permission and licensed by Creative Commons. 2. 1. Until next time, thank you.